This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. We've also existed in, you know, the the kind of post-war project into the neoliberal cutting of the excess of that post-war project. So we've existed in the action and reaction of the same thing. And so the question to me is, what can workers create? in new industries and in new ways um, that's going to change the relationship of their organizations um, to power. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Welcome, folks. We're entering a sequence of episodes here on the Hegemonicon about what we are building today on the left. And one of the big things people are building is the labor movement. Uh, My guest today is Alex Hahn, who has many years of experience as a labor organizer and is now the executive director of In These Times magazine. Alex, I'm glad to have you here. And um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, Thanks. I'm really uh, happy to be here and excited for this conversation. Um, So I'm Alex Hahn. Um, I am the executive director of In These Times magazine, which is an almost 50-year-old magazine of progressive politics and labor and organizing. I spent almost 20 years in the labor movement, um, over a decade as an officer of an SEIU local, uh, SEIU Healthcare Illinois in Indiana, and a lot of time working with workers in Illinois, Indiana, across the Midwest and across the country and forming unions and and fighting the boss, and and really working to uh, to try to build a, a bigger political movement centered around workers and labor. Thanks for being here. Um, we're seeing a lot more militancy and overall energy in the labor movement than in a very long time. Um, in the last several years, rank-and-file movements have transformed the UAW and the Teamsters, and new unions have made breakthroughs at Starbucks and Amazon, and these are really only the most prominent examples. There are dozens of more, and it seems like the energy is snowballing. Um, has it ever been so good in all of your years in the union movement? You know, and again, um, well, thanks for having me on. I think this is a really good way to launch out the conversation. I mean, I would say I'm not going to directly answer your question. I'm going to I'm going to get to that. Um, but I do think it's important to keep in context um, kind of what the situation is in labor. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2022, union membership density, which is the percentage of all workers who are actually union members covered by union contracts, that decreased to its lowest rate in recorded history. So in 2022, amid all of this historic organizing, um, union density was 10.1%, um, which is the lowest since it's been recorded. Now, the number of union members went up year to year from 2021, but the number of non-union workers grew significantly faster. And so that's just to think about, you know, changes to the environment. Um, they take a little bit of time. Um, to take root and first to see the real results. And it's really hard to predict exactly what those, those results will look like. But we've had, you know, inspiring organizing fights, um, like some of the ones you've named and more. Um, we've had a National Labor Relations Board that has made a set of decisions that are much friendlier to workers, to unions, um, than any in my lifetime and in my memory. Um, I also want to say, you know, today we're talking you know, a little bit over 12 hours after um, the tentative agreement was announced between the United Auto Workers and Ford. Yes. Um, you know, I think uh, by the time the podcast comes out, I'm not sure exactly what the situation will be. Um, but it's also important, you know, the Starbucks and Amazon fights have been really critical and important. Um, they also haven't resulted yet in union contracts, in organizational victory. 
Um, they're kind of in one mode and in one place of struggle. And so I do think it's important historically to think about, you know, workers en masse are much more likely in a broader way to take inspiration from clear material victories. So if the TA at Ford passes in the UAW, you know, one of the highlights, they've said 11% raises in the first year. That seems um, pretty easy to understand. Yeah, very sharp. You know, we can think about the the contract fight of the Teamsters at UPS, the largest single union contract in the country, um, where you've got, you know, huge wins. Uh, the company says the average driver is going to be getting $170,000 in wages and benefits annually after that. I, I do kind of, I don't want to separate the organizing campaigns and those fights um, from the contract campaigns, but I do think it's important to see you know, workers seeing real material gains um, from people around them, from people who they know, um, from people in their communities is something that I think is going to have a broader impact um, than the organizing fights, although those are critical as well. So we're going to get into all of, uh, you know, some of these prospects about where it goes from here over the next several years. I want to to enter the conversation, just take a brief step back. We know that none of this has come out of nowhere. Um, There's been, uh, of course, decades, centuries of rank-and-file activity in the labor movement, Um, but a big part of the recent story can be traced to the Chicago Teachers Union strike back in 2012. Um, You're a Chicago resident. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that strike and how it foreshadowed uh, the push of rank-and-file energy that has continued to develop in the decades since? Yeah, I, I do think it's a it's a it continues to be a really important touch point um, for a lot of people in the labor movement, frankly, and other social movements too, um, who've taken um, inspiration from that. Um, I will point out that actually a few weeks ago here in Chicago, um, UAW President Sean Fain came into town for a rally um, at the Union Hall, UAW Local 551, that represents Ford workers in Chicago. The current president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis-Gates, was there at that rally, and Sean Fain from the stage gave credit to the Chicago Teachers Union strike as one of the moments of inspiration that helped create this moment. So I do think we're we're kind of we're we're in the same, you know, you and Sean Fain are thinking alike here. Well, so I want to say that, and and I also think this goes to the previous question, but I'll, I'll go back to the beginning, try to give a little context. In two thousand eight, a group of Chicago teachers. Um, who really thought the current leadership was not serving them, was not serving their students, wasn't serving their broader membership in the face of huge attacks on the public schools, Um, privatization, charterization, um, waves of successive school closures, neighborhood plans that um, ended up having not a single uh, neighborhood elementary school in a bunch of black and brown neighborhoods around Chicago, um, replacing them all with charters, replacing them all with privatized actors. Um, Those teachers formed a caucus of rank-and-file educators um, inside the teachers' union, um, which had a really long history over decades and decades of kind of being in a struggle back and forth between, you know, what could be termed as social justice unionism and business unionism. Uh, Social justice unionism, you know, I think the Chicago Teachers' Union was really formed, actually, in the early 20th century. One of their first campaigns was around fair taxation, Um, in order to fund schools adequately. And so it's a deep tradition inside the schools. I think uh, a group of their members really saw them moving away at a critical moment um, when schools were under attack in a way they hadn't been before. Um, In 2010, that group, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, or CORE, as they're known, ran a slate against the incumbent leadership. Um, It was a moment when a lot of us in the labor movement in Chicago didn't necessarily give them a huge chance and a huge shot at winning, but they won in a runoff um, led by, you know, their new president, Karen Lewis. And really kind of that victory pointed toward putting up a fight for the next contract campaign, which is in 2012. Now, after uh, Karen and Core's victory in 2010, a guy who most of your listeners will be familiar with, um, Rahm Emanuel, Um, got the boot from the White House and ended up getting elected uh, mayor of Chicago, which in a lot of ways kind of sharpened that fight to bring in, you know, not just uh, a kind of like Chicago machine, you know, not just to have like a Richard Daly Jr. um, running the machine in that way, but to bring in really one of the architects of kind of 
third way democratic party neoliberalism really sharpened what was necessary and what that fight was going to be now as soon as ron came in he tried to set up more barriers um, to teachers even being able to go on strike they narrowed the set of issues that teachers could strike over to purely wages and benefits Um, they increased the threshold necessary in an internal vote to go on strike where normally it's 50% plus one of those voting, although for anyone who's in a union, um, anybody who's been in a democratic organization, you know you don't take an action as that has as much personal and broad impact as going on strike with a 50% plus one vote. They raised that threshold to 75%. And not just 75% of those who are voting, but 75% of the membership overall would need to vote in favor of a strike in order to go on strike. Now, they thought that was going to prevent the Chicago teachers from going on strike. What they did not count on was that was actually, in a lot of ways, a help to the Chicago Teachers Union to say we need not just a majority will to be able to go on strike, but we need functionally consensus among our membership Mm -hmm. that this is a fight we need to take on. So they created more unity in their membership. And they spent those couple of years in the lead-up to the 2012 strike really building the necessary muscles uh, politically, structurally, um, and more, and with coalition, you know, solidifying community and parent support, working with community organizations and different groups across the city. Um, they took on, alongside other unions like my union, SEIU Healthcare, big banks and financial actors that were starting public budgets and trying to you know, help make the argument for privatization, not just in education, but in healthcare and housing and all sorts of different areas. Um, they called out apartheid conditions in the public schools um, and really talked about the conditions as they were um, and didn't soften it. And so all of those things helped to lead up to a strike in 2012, a nine-day strike. It was almost a week and a half. It was the first strike in in Chicago public schools in 25 years, and really the first large-scale teacher strike, um, I think, in in a few decades um, anywhere in the country. Um, Nine days sounds short, but it was was considered to be hugely disruptive. I remember that everybody was talking about parents, I mean, all the political class. It It was hugely disruptive to the city, and had a, had a had a huge impact in nine days. Yeah, there are a few other things that could be shut down, you know, by 25,000 workers, but a public school system that has 400,000 students in it, you know, that millions of people around the city interact with every day. That's something that you see and you feel, and it's something that you see across the city, you know? And it was a really amazing moment where, you know, I remember... Uh, one night after the strike, I forget if I, I was in a store, a Home Depot or a Target, picking up some supplies for the next day, uh, wearing a Chicago Teachers Union shirt, and getting like four high fives, just walking down the aisles um, of a store. Awesome. It was a really, it was a really deep moment, um, and it was something that had enormous public support, you know, super majority public support, and even higher support among parents of public school students um, than among the general public. So the people most inconvenienced by the strike were the people who were the most in favor of it. And, you know, I I do want to just, like, go back to that previous question that you asked, Will, about kind of what are the moments, you know, has there there been a moment that's this good? And I want to talk about that timeline because the teacher strike in 2012 in Chicago, enormously meaningful. But it took several years in a lot of ways to see that impact. You saw the wave of red state teacher strikes in 2018 and 2019 um, that really took lessons from Chicago. Um, But I I just, you know, that timeline doesn't always necessarily add up um, immediately. Um, It's something that I think needs to be built to um, in a lot of ways. And obviously the the political expression of that power that was built in the workplace through CTU has is still ripening and uh, you know has now uh, taken Chicago City Hall through uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. We'll come back to that too. Um, are there any other key moments, organizations, or people that um, you would want to mention, non comprehensive, um, that uh, have been you know really pillars of the labor movement's upsurge over the last decade? And what are some of the things you'd point out that have gone right in order to get to this point? Yeah, I would, you know, I would point out Labor Notes as a really critical organization that has played a really important role. Um, I actually think even though I live in Chicago, you know, some of the 
members of the the slate who were running for office in core, I met for the first time at a labor notes conference in the spring of 2010 outside of Detroit, Michigan, um, you know, at a hotel in Dearborn. Um, and labor notes has been a real center of that fighting part of the labor movement that is really thinking about how to create militants, how to create union democracy. Um, and that's a through line through, you know, the Teamsters fight, the UAW fight, um, the fight inside CTU and a lot of other teacher unions, is that Labor Notes has been a convener of activists inside the labor movement. And it's been, it's played the role of connecting. And so there's there's a lot of other, you know, I think of other struggles, um, you know, maybe in the couple of decades before that teacher strike. Um, and I think about the connectivity that Labor Notes has given things like democracy movements in um, the East Coast Longshore Union, you know, democracy movements and, and pushes inside uh, the Transport Workers Union in New York City um, that embarked on some, frankly, some strikes that were illegal strikes mm-hmm. um, in the aughts. And I now, think it's one thing to build a fighting um, union, a win recognition, and organize a heavy, heavy-duty strike to get a contract. That's hard enough. We're seeing more and more of that. But it's another thing altogether to wield that power in the political arena, especially in a leftist or transformational sort of manner. And the CTU and a handful of other teachers unions have managed to do both in really inspiring ways. I wonder what you foresee in that area. Do you think we'll see um, the Teamsters and UAW getting involved soon, not just at the bargaining table, but politically? And I guess the more general question would be, is the politicization of their unions um, an explicit aim of most of the labor notes crowd, the labor leftists you're talking to? Yeah, I well, I think that we've seen, you know, just in the UAW's relationship um, to a Democratic president and Joe Biden during this strike, um, you've seen them kind of wield their power in a very different way. Um, they still have yet to endorse Joe Biden. Um, and I think almost every, if not every major labor union has already done so. Um, but they were able to pull off the feat of getting Joe Biden to be the first president um, to walk a picket line with a union that's on strike um, while having not endorsed him yet. I would also say that I think rhetorically, and I think this is true of both the new leaders of the UAW and the Teamsters, um, have really rhetorically talked about the fight in a clearer way. Um, And I think in the UAW, it's a little bit um, sharper, frankly. Um, I mean, Sean Fain has really, if you listen to his speeches, um, he's really dug deep in, in a set of kind of traditions that we really haven't seen much of. Um, recently from labor it's amazing, leadership. Actually. Yeah. I don't know if anyone expected that from him, but he's really been, um, I mean, his, his vocabulary, his language, it's inspiring. I mean, we need, uh, we need a dozen like him. Yeah. Yeah. No, just we need hundreds like to, him. to see a union president from Kokomo, Indiana, quoting Malcolm X, um, as he's, as he's, you know, pushing his workers, um, you know, into thinking bigger and thinking bigger about the demands that they make. So I do think, you know, Teamsters and UAW are both unions that have been very involved politically. But the question is, can they, are they going to shift how they approach that? I think we're seeing some of the possibility of that shift in the UAW. And I think we've seen the Teamsters, frankly, be very aggressive in uh, like California, where Governor Gavin Newsom has been busy uh, vetoing a lot of pro-labor legislation in California. The Teamsters leadership there has been extremely vocal, along with their national leadership. Um, about how they feel about that. So I do think they're they're two very different unions with very different history. Um, And maybe at some point when you do another look back, well, we can look at the Alliance for Labor Action, which was a short-lived collaboration between the Teamsters and the UAW back in the early 70s. And an attempt to break away from the AFL-CIO and to create, um, you know, a, a new kind of labor... Uh, federation that would function uh, politically differently. As to kind of whether the politicization is a goal, I think that really depends on who you're talking to. And it depends on, you know, uh, but a lot of that is just like a, a question. It's a question of order. It's not a question of, or it's a question of what's going to lead to what. And I think for a lot of the people that I talk to, a lot of the people that I really look up to, you know, on the labor left, people have been doing this for a long time. They think of the 
the kind of militant democratic nature of these unions as a necessary precondition um, to politicization. So we're now in a moment we can have that conversation um, much more broadly. But it's pretty remarkable that we're at a place where we can think of two of the most storied and largest and most powerful unions in the country where this is an active question. I'm interested to hear you state the case for why union democracy um, matters so much. Um, Obviously, if you are not in charge and you would rather have your faction be in charge, uh, democracy uh, is one way to get there. But that's not just the argument that's being made. There's a belief that the union democracy itself is deeply important uh, for the overall effectiveness. Yeah, I I mean, I think... We've seen this in the way that the UAW has gone about this strike. They've done this strike in a very non-traditional way. Um, They went about this strike in a strategic way so as not to stretch their own resources while being able to play the big three automakers off of each other. And I think it's frankly a strategy that could not have been put into motion had they not recently had the first national membership vote for their leadership in the history of the union. Um, and I think that, like, democracy, democracy for its own sake is something that's worth supporting. But the kind of risks that workers need to take in order to transform their relationship to their employers, their relationship to power, are risks that workers take together. And I do think that there is this, you know, there is a question, the question of democracy, and I think democracy and unions can frankly surface in very different ways. It can look very different from union to union. Um, but at the end of the day, do you have a supermajority of your members who want to act together and are willing to listen to each other and to take care of each other? Um, and that's a critical part. You know, there's plenty of organizations and people, and there are unions included in this too, whose, you know, their leaders may take bold stances. Um, but the question is can you back up those bold stances with the action? Um, of your members. I think it's like very valid. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of, frankly, a lot of union activists and leaders about the, the crisis right now in Palestine, in Israel. And, you know, and I've been talking to a lot of activists who are saying, why aren't the unions jumping into this? I think one of those questions is you've got to see a path toward unity of action in order to create effective action. Um, and so I do think, you know, democracy is kind of the key um, to all of that in whatever form it can take, in whatever union that it takes root in. So moving into the back into the question of politics for one second, uh, I want to ask one more question about Chicago. Um, you're a part of a group called United Working Families, which is a, a it's a coalition, someone called a political instrument that um, I'm not exactly familiar, frankly, with all of the internal operations and structures, but what is clear is that it coheres and, challenge, uh, and channels the power of progressive unions and community organizations in Chicago into the political arena and has uh, recently had huge success at uh, electing the mayor, Brandon Johnson. Uh, do you think this is a good model for how unions ought to um, be part of a larger left progressive um, political program? Um, I do. And I'm going to be biased in that, um, you know, to, to some degree. Um, but I do think there is, you know, there's a real need. And, and United Working Families was not created, you know, in a bubble. Um, it was created, you know, with some help and some inspiration and some lessons learned from our allies in the Working Families Party, um, both in New York and elsewhere. Um, you know, it was something where we thought about, you know, even thinking more globally. You know, how do unions exist in left uh, political parties and structures um, around the globe? We can even think of, you know, just to the north of us in Canada, the New Democratic Party is a relatively recent creation, um, a third party that was created by the Canadian Labour Congress um, as kind of a, a functional Labour Party. Um, for Canada. Um, now, you know, their, their actions haven't always lined up that way. Um, but there's a lot of different experiments and attempts. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, United Working Families structurally, and it brings together, you know, labor unions, it brings together other political organizations and community organizations and individual members, and tries to figure out a way to do balanced democratic decision making as a result of that. Um, I do think a lot of that inspiration comes from looking at the successes and challenges of social democratic and left parties across the globe. 
n- nowhere in nowhere else does do political parties look like the American Democratic and Republican parties. And for most of them, you know, there is like a there's a constituency. We were also inspired by the fight to reform the the Labour Party in the UK, um, which was a really active struggle, um, you know, in the mid teens. Um, and so I do think it's a it's you know is it a blueprint? No. Is it a good model? And is it something to contend with, as as you know other organizations and organizers and and other actors are are looking to build their politics. Yes, I think it it should be looked at. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. So I want you to then give us an upbeat story for the trajectory of the labor movement over the next 10 years. The, the, the union organizing itself, but also how this is in relationship to a broader left and in the political arena. Yeah, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, and this goes to the question of democracy in the labor movement, and it goes to also my response to your first question, you know, talking about what is the real context of where worker power exists in this country. If the labor movement represents 10% of workers, and if that percentage is dropping, then that labor movement cannot democratically represent the will of workers um, more broadly. Um, That's just how the numbers work. And I do think that the deepest path toward shifting the politics and shifting the orientation of the labor movement is not to focus all of our energy purely on internal reform efforts, although those are critically important. The question is, how is the labor movement going to grow? How can we double the size of the labor movement? Um, That's the thing that can actually energize. That's the thing that can shift the politics. Um, If, you know, if 15 million young workers join the labor movement, as I, I think like every public opinion poll has shown, particularly young people have an enormously positive opinion of labor unions and that a super majority of them would join a union today if it was an option. Um, you know, how do we think about that shifting those politics? Because really, when the labor movement has gone through waves of organizing, whether it was, um, you know, in the early part of the century in the CIO and industrial unionization, whether it was in the 60s and 70s in the wave of public sector unionization, um, which enormously diversified the labor movement, both in gender and race, and really shifted and changed what the politics were there. Um, you know, I, I think that those are the things that can really help to shape what the labor movement looks like going forward. So the question is, can an internal fight, can a fight like the contract campaign and the strikes at the big three, can that turn into the organizing of hundreds of thousands of more manufacturing workers and to bring that energy um, into you know, the labor movement? I think it's very possible. You know, I think that, but I think it's also, you know, I, I don't generally give purely optimistic takes. Well, um, so I, I like that about you. Yeah. And, and I'll temper that just by saying that, you know, a lot of that is about the question of the conditions of what is the economy overall? Is the economy expanding and in what ways? Um, and so we've got to maximize what's possible, you know, given uh, we're not going to change the broader economic structures that we work in and live in right now. Um, but we can maximize what we can do. And so I think there is a lot of possibility over the next 10 years, and there's a real necessity. Um, The labor movement needs to transform itself. It's not going to transform itself um, just by shuffling around the chairs that exist right now. It needs to grow, and that possibility is there. So what is missing to make that come true? (sighs) That's a good question. I think we're getting closer to, I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, you can point in a bunch of different directions. There's a deficit of leadership in some ways 
But I think we're seeing newer and different kinds of leaders express themselves. And I think particularly, you know, in these union reform movements and what they've been able to produce. Because I think we do need labor leaders. You know, I I wrote about this in In These Times in my editorial um, last issue, the demand for a 32-hour work week. And, you know, we don't know where that's going to land with the big three. But the simple act of the UAW putting that on the table for a couple hundred thousand workers and saying, here's a demand. Um, Was the UAW saying, we're going to bargain for the whole working class and we're going to talk about what the whole working class needs? And so I do think there's there's a question of leadership and then there's a question of kind of like cross-union partnership um, and an ability of different people who are working in different industries and different regions and places to coordinate strategically, which is, again, that's a, a role that Labor Notes in some ways has played. That's a role that there's a lot of different um, organizations. The Bargaining for the Common Good Network um, that I've worked with a lot over the years is another place where that kind of coordination is happening. Mm-hmm. So you noted that 10% is not enough to actually represent the working class. Um, You suggested that we should try to double that to maybe 20%. That sounds better. If we were at 20% union density, would that be enough to uh, uh, represent the interests of the working class? Or do you believe that unions uh, need to be in relationship with other working class formations that organize working class people, but not under, you know, not in the workplace and under the guise of being a labor union? Yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, there's no magic number that gives us the amount of kind of credibility and power. Um, and I should also point out, you know, there are countries in which I think, you know, the labor movement does a very credible job of, of representing a broader working class sentiment. Um, countries like France, you know, part of this is the structure of how labor law works is different. Um, but actually, France's union density is pretty comparable to the United States. Um, but they can, you know, their union federations, they have sets of competing different union federations with different political um, views. Um, they can call for general strikes and get millions and millions of workers um, to support those. They can they can put out kind of political calls and and they can move those politics as well. Um, so there's so I do think it's critical, you know, for labor to work together with, you know, the growing climate justice movement, with the the movement for Black Lives, um, you know, with groups like the Debt Collective or tenant organizations that are really organizing people um, in. Uh, a model that's inspired by a set of labor organizing, but also is like about what is people's material relationship um, to power, um, and what's and and so I think like those are really critical, and I think it's balancing those two out. But what I would really say is that what we need is a dynamic labor movement that is unpredictable and growing, and so there isn't a magic number. Um, but if we're on the upswing and growing that power, um, that's something that you know politicians have to contend with. That's something that kind of economic actors have to contend with. Yeah. Within that dynamism or the new ideas that are emerging and directions people want to see their unions or the labor movement at large large go, are there any directions or tendencies that you find concerning that you think are, aside from just the incumbency and the sort of the pre-existing stasis, are there any uh, proactive tendencies out there right now that you think would be a wrong turn? I think there's, um, and and part of this just comes from my own experience. I think there can be, like historically, you know, I came up as an organizer in the aughts, which was a a challenging time um, to be an organizer in a number of different ways. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from a lot of brilliant people who had been organizing through the 80s and 90s. I mean, this was like three decades of the, you know, some of the kind of the the most challenging political climate, you know, in in kind of modern American history, in a lot of ways, the rise of neoliberalism, the, the, you know, and all of that. And I think that there is continues to be a tendency of trying to take tactics and strategies from that moment and broaden them out. And I think it's a mistake. There are a lot of cases in which we've seen, and this is true of many different unions and organizations. Um, And it's really a, a strategic question. But to win representation and gains for workers who have had no role in fighting for them, um, to focus on legislative victory, you know, at the expense of building rank and file, 
um, and kind of mass base and power. Um, now, those are questions. It's almost never cut and dry. It's almost never, hey, we're going to either do 100% this way or 100% that way. Um, but I do think there continues to be danger in creating things that we have to explain to workers or victories, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Oh, a legislative vehicle, you know, to raise the wages for this specific group of workers, or, or that we have, you know, this kind of this public entity that now has to listen to like this specific group of workers in industry. Um, anything that takes two steps to explain to a group of workers that right. they haven't had to fight that they haven't been in a fight for um, is something that I think is it's challenging to think of how that really moves a bigger working class movement forward. That's very interesting. Sometimes I see groups making demands for procedural justice so that they'll be invited to the table in the future when the reality is they haven't been able to f actually force themselves to the table this time yeah. on the issues that matter. And I, I, I haven't seen that work out often. Yeah, and, and it's a, all these situations are dynamic too. And part of that is yeah. how do we understand what is a goal we're trying to get to and how do we have some strategic tension um, in how we're going to arrive at that goal too. It's important. Right. Um, so I want to ask a question about the, the, the more external conditions. And you mentioned this, the sort of uh, macroeconomic uh, ebbs and flows that really have huge impacts on the labor market. Tight labor markets have been an important factor, um, strengthening the hands of workers in some terms uh, during the pandemic and its aftermath. And it's driven up wages. But I'm a little unclear on how it has by itself uh, led to more militant organizing. So in the inverse, we know that an economic downturn and rise in unemployment would be bad for workers as a class, but do you think it would be bad for union organizing per se? And uh, another way of asking this is, like, should union organizers be watching Fed policy with concern that Jerome Powell is going to induce another recession and that's going to cut the knees out from, from this wave? Um, I mean, simple answer is yes and yes. You know, um, there there's only so much um, you know sharp ideology or coherent strategy can push back against the broader conditions that we're in. You know, and and I do think part of that is like identifying the places where those impacts are smaller, and that can be you know regions, it can be specific industries, specific employers. But I think at large. Um, you know, I, I, I also don't think from some policymakers and some, you know, kind of thought leaders, they've been very clear that they want a recession in order to lessen the bargaining power of workers. Crystal clear. Yeah. Um, they, they say it out loud. They say it out loud all the time. Um, and they're not wrong. Um, that is something that impacts the ability to do movement building um, on a broad basis. So now I want to um, move towards a couple of uh maybe more ideological and, and long-term oriented questions. Um, I'm, I'm curious for you, um, is the horizon of the union movement fundamentally reform-oriented in the sense that its aim is to represent more workers, to do better politics, and then win a better deal for the working class? Or do you harbor more revolutionary ambitions of, you know, perhaps some sort of general strike that would bring the state to its knees or some sort of dual power being exercised at the point of production that we build on the shop floor? Where do you orient yourself on those debates? I mean, I, I go back to a little bit of what I like the the way that I've framed it sometimes before is to say it's not a question of how do we reform this labor movement, although that's one of the strategies that we need to use. It's a question of like what is the next labor movement? Um, what does that look like? And we have been, you know, structurally in the same place in the labor movement for seventy years, um, really like seventy-five years since the passage of Taft-Hartley, you know, the Labor Management um, Relations Act, um, all of these things have like set up the structure of what we exist in. And we've also existed in, you know, the, the kind of post-war project into the neoliberal uh, cutting of the excess of that post-war project. So we've existed in the action and reaction of the same thing. And so the question to me is, what can workers create in new industries and in new ways um, that's going to change the relationship of their organizations um, to power. I would say I do harbor 
revolutionary ambitions. And, and I think of them more as transformative ambitions. I think that um, there's power to be built. And, and, and I think this is something we all understand. Like we are in, you know, an interlocking set of crises. We're in a poly crisis and reform is not adequate. Um, what we would like to achieve eventually and what we uh what we have to do in the meantime yeah yeah so continuing to peer ahead into the clouds of this 21st century i wonder how we can do all of this without just speed running the 20th century because in the united states 20th century labor radicalism led to a great class compromise that was the New Deal order. And uh, in that New Deal compromise, uh, you know, American labor was a, a willing partner in the project of American global hegemony led by the U.S. capitalist class and the military industrialist com complex. And you know, labor took a share of the profits and fell in line on foreign policy. And my sense of solidarity tells me that I don't think this is an acceptable outcome uh, this time around. And I don't think it would be for the left labor organizers I know, but how can we make sure it actually is different? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've seen so many echoes of this in some of the conversations and debates around, you know, Bidenomics or the Inflation Reduction Act and, yes. and, and so many people, even those who I think take what might be a more conservative stance on those, um, understand that, they're pointed toward a bigger foreign policy objective, right? Which is, which is, um, you know, animosity with China and an attempt to continue asserting America's place in the, in the global order. We do need to have some clear starting points where our understanding has to be that that is not an order that is going to actually um, create a livable world for the future. Um, so I do think there's some, there is some need to to figure out how to bring a set of people to some sort of consensus on that question. Now, that, that doesn't mean that different organizations and groups aren't going to take, again, different tactical and strategic routes um, to something, and it doesn't mean that there won't be um, disagreement. And, you know, I do think of, this is one of those places where I, I do think about the work, um, particularly, you know, in my mind, is the work of the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil. Mm -hmm. and the kind of continual political education project that exists inside that movement. Now, that is not a labor union or a labor movement, but I do think there are some really important lessons for us to learn in how to adapt and evolve um, a transformative vision of politics um, in order to not not just become a part of like a moderately better, like not, not say, well, we're just going to be junior partners in this hegemonic project. We're going to make it a little bit better than it was going to have been um, because we know that that little better isn't adequate. And so I do want to point to like, I do think in the global South, there are a lot of places, there are a lot of organizations and people, and there are a lot of unions who are grappling with that question as well. You know, what is their role in relationship to the state? What is their role um, in their relationship to actually thinking about transforming things? In the U.S., we have kind of a unique position being in, um, in the global power. Um, and so I do think you know, it's a place where we can hopefully learn from some of those lessons. It's also a place where I'm really heartened by this new UAW leadership. Um, you know, we've seen, and this is like a relatively small thing in the, in the greater scheme, but um, we've seen UAW's Region 6 that covers the West Coast sign on to a labor letter um, for a ceasefire. Uh, in Gaza, which, you know, labor unions by and large, hopefully by the time this comes out, there will have been more who've signed on. Um, but to see the UAW being maybe one of the key actors in that kind of liberal hegemonic project, um, to see the possibility of them existing in a, situated in a slightly different way is yeah. enormously kind of hopeful to me. I think where it would really get hard is in the UAW could we imagine a UAW that would uh, take a stand in favor of less resource-intensive 
uh, models of the EV transition. I mean, that's a place where I go. I'm like, that's going to be another tough one because right now the profit model is all around building the biggest cars with the heaviest batteries possible. And we know we're going to use uh, maybe 10 times more uh, lithium cobalt than we need to uh, compared to, you know, maybe uh, other ways of even building cars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but it, it might be a little bit less profitable based on how they're doing things now. Um, that's going to be a tough one because ultimately the 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 management and the and the workers are are uh, negotiating over a pool of profits and to call that into question is the toughest sell of all. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Although again, I think there are other there are instances where we can look at unions and and maybe the answers haven't been answers that are transformative, but we can look at the struggle and we can look at like how other unions have answered some of those questions. I think at the West Coast dock workers, you know, with a leadership that understands many of these jobs are going to be automated, you know, um, and, and figuring out how do we actually do something that manages that process and that allows for workers. Like, I do think the frame of a just transition, I still think that is a really great phrase to think about. And I think it, it's got application much more broadly than climate and environmental justice. I, I want a just transition for uh, workers in the, in the prison industrial complex. You know, I want a just transition. And so a lot of this is like, how do we give workers agency and a democratic voice in creating the kind of world that they think they need? And I think if we're able to put that question in front of people, um, then that's something new for a lot of people to grapple with um, and, you know, could, could end up hopefully uh, moving us in a, in a different direction. So if you ask me today, you know, is the UAW going to do that? I would say the possibility exists and that's significantly different um, than how I would have felt a year or two ago. You know, I would add something that, that occurs to me, and this is very specific, but, you know, back in the mid-70s, um, there was a leadership contest in the United Steelworkers, um, and a leader from the southeast side of Chicago, Ed Sedlowski, this legendary labor-left organizer and leader, was running for the national presidency of the Steelworkers, and he gave this interview um, where he said, you know, we don't want, I don't want my kids to go work in a Coke oven. I don't want my kids to work. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is we need to figure out a path where no one has to do this kind of backbreaking, dangerous work. And really, I think like that kind of statement pointed toward how do we think about actually, again, the world that we want to live in and that we want to build and what is the role of labor in creating that? management of production for the actual benefit of human beings yeah yeah it's not that complex an idea yeah yeah Yeah. 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 so i i was curious to ask doing politics you know a left-leaning union often finds itself opposed to other unions solidarity forever and yet uh people come out on the opposite side of a lot of uh political candidates and issues so how do you what is your approach to dealing with this um holding solidarity forever while also uh, dealing with these, you know, pitched political battles uh, in the political arena. I, I, I would relate this back to a couple, like thinking about union democracy, thinking about kind of the, the need that we have. You know, I think about a lot of moments and, and it's true when you're doing politics and legislation. And this is true, not just in the labor movement, it's true much more broadly as well. You know, um, you're going to end up on the different side um, than people, and you're going to wish that you were on the same side. I do think a lot of that can be, there's like two elements. One of them is about like, how are we expressing the needs of workers, you know, and communities mm-hmm. like in these questions? And how do we couch these things? You know, so many times a legislative fight, it just ends up being framed as, as it's not framed in the sense of like, what do members need or what is the impact going to be on workers, right? Um, it ends up being a very different kind of basis on which people make decisions, like a very inside baseball political basis. So I do think as much as possible, like focusing it on who are the actual people who are going to be impacted? How are they making a decision about what needs to move forward? And how do we push people to respect that decision? But then there is another level, like the reality is elite politics exist and kind of like the world of lobbying and legislation and and political operatives exists. And 
there is an, a relational aspect of like labor leaders having to figure out like what are the things that we need consensus on what are the things that we need agreement on what are the things that we can agree to disagree um and i would also like point toward you know some of the you know labor unions something i think a lot of people on the political left um really need to keep in mind is that there's a lot to lose in politics um for a labor union there's a lot to lose um for any constituency that has existing relationships with the people in power as bad as you know as strange as those relationships may be and i think this is like broadly true you know when we think about the voting patterns of like you know we say oh black voters do this and latinx voters do that and and you know those are a lot of those behaviors are a function of like an actual like the material impact of a loss of access and power can have and so i think that's true in the labor movement as well um but i do think that you have to i i do think that the baseline is figuring out what are the things that you actually need agreement on that are core and what are the things that you can be on opposite sides yeah if people want to if you got you got to build a bridge across it's if you're in the inside and you are able to get your deal on the inside and even if it's not much it, it, it's going to be tough to convince people to give that up uh, on a lark or for a promise of some revolution that might not be just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. And I'll give, you know, I, I'm not going to name the unions involved, but I can think of a few different examples of entering into coalition with multiple unions and community groups. And one of the groups saying, the bottom line is, if we get this for our members, we're going to have to walk away. And I remember being really appreciative of the clarity of that to say, like, this is our bottom line and, you know, we're not going to go after you. Um, but if we get, you know, this certain type of deal for the people we represent, we're going to have to walk away. The problem comes up when people are not clear about their actual objectives um, and what they're trying to accomplish. And it becomes about yeah, moralism rather than people's right. interests. Right, exactly. Yeah. So as a closing question, um, what would you advise to someone who's listened to this? They're, they're excited, they're jazzed, and they want to become a labor leftist organizer, work to build a transformational socialist workers movement. Where should they start? Well, I do think, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of debate in some places about the rank and file strategy versus others. There's a, a lot of debate about the positionality of people. I don't have a blanket answer. I do think that if you work in a place or an industry or if you have the ability to do that, where you can imagine that there are like-minded people like you, that you can connect with, um, then I would encourage people to join a union, to form a union at their job, you know, um, if it's one of those things. I would encourage people to get involved in, uh, you know, whether as a worker or as a volunteer with something like the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee um, that the DSA and UE um, have been running collectively for the past several years. And that's really helped to launch organization in a number of different types of workplaces and industries around the country. I would encourage people to to subscribe to Labor Notes and to go to, you know, to, to go to a troublemaker's workshop um, that Labor Notes is putting on as close, you know, if it's in, if it's in a, a distance that you can make, to go there and to learn from some of the people and hear from some of the people who are really actively engaged in that um, and to really think about how to how to, you know, approach things from a learning perspective. We'll get some of those resources uh, for the uh, Emergency Workers Organizing Committee and Labor Notes in the in the show notes for this episode. Alex, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, I really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Will. Really appreciate you inviting me on. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.